This podcast was produced by My Podcast Pal. For help with your podcast, check out mypodcastpal.com. Hey guys, thanks once again for listening to Canadian Cannabis Update. We're a Canadian-based podcast featuring regular news updates and interviews concerning the legalization of cannabis. Today we have a special interview with the CEO of MAD Canada, that's Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Mr. Andy Murray. Andy was kind enough to offer his time to talk about concerns and observations about cannabis consumption and driving. There's a lot to be learned here, and I think that many listeners will be surprised by his perspective. Enjoy. We're here today with Andy Murray. He's the CEO of MAD Canada. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much. Um, can you tell us really quickly how you became the CEO of MAD? Well, I've, I've spent my 40-plus-something years in the charitable sector, the last 21 with MAD Canada. So when I came to MAD Canada in 1997, it was an opportunity to work with, at that time, a very small uh, national grassroots organization that was looking for some leadership uh, on the charitable side and I was able to provide that and it's been a very exciting career and it's been 21 very rewarding years. Um, Can you tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with Mad Canada? I'm a former Ironman competitor so I've completed five Ironman so that's uh, wow. 3.8k swim, 180k bike, and a 42.2 marathon. So, very proud of uh, that background. So, I've always tried to balance my work with uh, pursuits that would take my mind away from the challenges at work. I used to go to the uh, Penticton Ironman year after year as a spectator, and I always said, by the time I hit 40, I want to do an Ironman, and now I'm 43. <laughs> it hasn't happened. It's a bit daunting. That was my very first one, Ironman Canada, back in uh, 1991. Good for you. I, I can't even, I mean, I aspire, but I don't know that I have the strength, the inner strength to get through that. Um, okay, so let me jump into my next question. Um, I just want to set the table and kind of get uh, some perspective on who you are. Driving aside, how do you feel about responsible alcohol and or cannabis consumption well actually you know if if the whole population would uh drink alcohol use cannabis or other drugs in a very safe level responsible way um organizations like ourselves wouldn't even exist um and there would still be lots of fun and consumption so it's really those people that go way beyond the levels of safe consumption that puts themselves and others at risk and you know it's we've tried for decades to get that behavioral educational message across there's still about 20 percent that just don't pay any attention to it and unfortunately uh, they cause most of the carnage out there in preparation for this interview i watched a number of uh, video interviews of you and uh, the one thing i noticed was i mean you guys have a very strict mandate uh, and it makes sense but you as a person when answering questions uh, seem very open-minded considering uh, the organization that you represent you are able to talk about cannabis or alcohol from an open perspective you're not you're not strictly against consumption it's more about being realistic uh, and I really appreciated that about you yeah and I think what we're trying to be 
is with our educational messages, it's very easy to have campaigns that say, no, unfortunately, the population doesn't listen to those. So we try to be uh, a truth broker. And if you're, for example, a cannabis user, we try to give you really good advice especially around driving after you use cannabis, um, that'll make you safe and others safe on the road. And I think that because we use that science-based approach to that type of messaging, people respect that. So these days, uh, how often are you talking about cannabis consumption in driving compared to alcohol? It's unfortunately taken about a 90-10%. So... Once the Trudeau government was elected with the promise to legalize cannabis, uh, the discussions really tilted, uh, you know, all about cannabis, very little about alcohol, as we've gone over the last couple of years getting ready for legalization. I mean, we've been able to bring alcohol back into the discussions because I think we've learned a lot from the alcohol field. Not everything can be applied to the cannabis uh, field, but uh, a lot can. And, and we're hoping that we spent 30 years trying to get to where we are today on alcohol, and that's been a major achievement. My hope with cannabis is we can arrive at the safe solution and understanding part a lot quicker than it took us on alcohol. Right, more about education. When it comes to cannabis right now, there's a lot of intangibles that uh, police are dealing with, and, and one is, is effectively measuring how intoxicated a person is. Uh, how do you feel about the technology that's available to the police right now? Um, I think the technology is okay in the way they're going to use it um, going forward. By no means is it the technology that we're going to use five years from now. And I think there's uh, great opportunities for companies to develop much better detection devices for cannabis and driving. I think there's a huge industry out there that, that's working on that now. We had the same thing with alcohol when the per se level for 08 was brought in in 1969. They they had a device that had a needle and you had to give it a pretty, you know, wide range of margin to, you know, it wasn't exactly accurate to zero one. But today we have these sophisticated computerized uh, breathalyzers that measure to zero 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 one and you know extremely accurate. We'll get there with the drug technology, but we're probably similar to where we were in 1969 with alcohol. Right. How do you feel about the concept? A lot of um, regular consumers or medicinal consumers of cannabis will argue that uh, they can effectively have more THC in their blood than other people and still go about their day and not be intoxicated you know and that creates a bit of a gray area argument um how do you feel about that argument well i, I think the thing is with it that there's a, a couple of different things that's been put in place to make sure that um only those people that are showing signs of impairment are actually put through a police process so the first thing is for an officer to test somebody for under the influence of drugs, they have to have reasonable suspicion that they've been using drugs. So 
they need to look at the driver like they do for alcohol and look for signs of drug use. Uh, could be, you know, smell, it could be the eyes, it could be delayed responses. There's all kinds of training that's going on to look at those things that impair somebody and an officer can recognize uh, at roadside. So that's the first thing. You have to have that. So when they feel that there's some of those signs, and that's a pretty low threshold in the law. So let's be honest, if some of those things are there, the officer can make the demand. And they have two options. They can do a behavioral test, which is called the standardized field sobriety test, which is a three-step process. Or they can use an oral fluid uh, device. Right. Um, With the oral fluid device, it's been set at a very, what I would consider a very impairing level. So it's been set at 25 nanograms. Despite that, the levels for, that are in the criminal code are 5 and 2 nanograms. Mm-hmm. The roadside testing is 25. So when we talk to people that are doing the studies where they get people high on cannabis, put them on simulators that simulate driving a motor vehicle and draw their blood. That person would have had to to fail that saliva road test, would have had to use in the last hour, um, driven within 30 minutes to fail that test. So they're really only picking up those that are truly intoxicated and should not be driving. Um, unfortunately, at that level, they're also going to miss a number of people that are between, you know, say, 5 nanograms and 24 nanograms that probably shouldn't be driving based on the research and studies we've seen so far, but they will not be detected by police. So just like alcohol, the, you know, the way that the law has been set up is to really focus on those that definitely should not be driving. So. Um, and I'm hoping in time that 25 nanograms, as uh, the technology improves, that that uh, number goes down and should go down. Um, but right now, that's the best we can do. You know, um, I find it uh, difficult to say without any without any question that say 25 nanograms per milliliter of blood is the point in which you're too intoxicated or in the case of C46, two to five nanograms. Um, And that you take other models as an example in professional sports, the NBA uh, has a THC test and any players found with over 50 nanograms per milliliter in their bloodstream can get fined or in trouble. Uh, Major League Baseball is also 50 and I've actually read that the International Olympic Committee allow competing athletes to have up to 150 nanograms per milliliter in their system before they can get in trouble or or potentially have their uh, metal stripped from them. So my question is, um, do you firmly believe that these numbers are an accurate way of identifying how intoxicated in fact one person really is or do you think they're a little bit arbitrary at the moment no i don't think they're arbitrary you know in fact as i stated i I think they're high um so i i think most of the studies are showing that five nanograms and above you shouldn't be driving and it also indicates recent use within you know the last four to six hours and so 25 is really uh, a high level. I would strongly suspect with those sport uh, 
league numbers and the Olympic numbers that uh, to get to those levels, they would have had to have been uh, immediately tested after use to right. reach those numbers. And so I would strongly suspect that if you look into the records of suspensions for cannabis, there would be very few or none uh, because those numbers are way too high. This is why I ask, you know, what's the science behind coming up with two nanograms? And I think in the in the states right now, Colorado specifically, they're at five. Is that correct? That that's correct. And they they you have to have it, it's called an inference five nanograms. So what basically you have to the officer has to do um, is prove that there's impairment uh, before they can make the demand for the blood test in Colorado. Uh, they don't use oral fluids in in Colorado, and then uh, once they you know have the inference and the demand, then the blood is taken. Now the average blood test in Colorado um, takes about four hours after that demand, and it's not a surprise to us that there's hardly any convictions in Colorado for cannabis above the five nanograms because it's, it's, it's too difficult to get the proper level at driving uh, because of the time weight. You know, cannabis dissipates so quickly out of the body that if you're not testing within two hours, most of the cannabis, the active Delta-9 ingredient, the THC part, is gone. I mean, obviously, there's metabolites left, but that's not going to be at those levels which are going to be in the law that makes it illegal to be driving at that level or above. What about the argument from um, medicinal patients that THC is fat-soluble and stays in the system for, in fact, a long time, the opposite of what you're saying, and uh, if somebody is a regular consumer, say, for pain relief or something like that, that they could, in fact, be walking around at any given time with too much THC in their system to pass a sobriety test? Well, the first thing is, too, is if, you know, again, you need to be showing signs of impairment before the test could even be demanded. So if, if they're functionally in a, a normal fashion, and yes, they have THC in their body, but it's not the active psychoactive ingredient, they're not going to show any signs of impairment. So that's the big barrier there. Are they showing signs of impairment? And what is their level when they're tested? And so, you know, I think the problem is it's really difficult with the medical users uh, because some use such high levels of THC that they might never get their THC levels below what would be acceptable for driving. But that's not any different from some pharmaceutical drugs where doctors will advise the patients, you know, when you're on this prescription, you can't drive because you're going to be impaired or in this case, you know, that if they're going to use at those levels, a lot of times a medical user has to, you know, abstain for a period of time to get their THC levels below an acceptable level for driving. So they need to have those difficult discussions with their doctor 
and work out, you know, what periods of abstinence they need to get it below driving if they want to drive. Mm -hmm. Well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I was under the impression that under Bill C-46, that police officers were now uh, able to have mandatory testing based on their own judgment and not necessarily on evidence that somebody's impaired. So in C-46, there's provisions that deal with alcohol and there's provisions that deal with drugs. So going forward, uh, starting in December of 2018, after the six months of the passage of C-46, police for alcohol only will have the right to demand a breath test any place, any time, for alcohol only. Oh, interesting. For drugs, they still need to have that threshold of reasonable suspicion. Okay. You know, and that's been in the alcohol area, a big uh, area of uh, legal defenses, that uh, the officer did not have, you know, reasonable suspicion to make that demand. So if that is argued successfully, then the test does not count. So it's very, the process at roadside now is very different. They're either going to proceed for alcohol or they'll proceed for drugs. But for the alcohol side, they can do a mandatory screening. They can't do that for drugs. Can you tell me what are the statistics on people who drive under the influence of painkillers, antidepressants, and other other drugs, narcotics that are legal but could also uh, impair you? So the real good source of data that we have is, you know, fatalities. And so when we look at uh, drugs alone, um, that's the leading cause of death on the roadway. The second category would be a combination of drugs and alcohol. And then the third combination, the lowest one, would be alcohol alone. So when you look at those two categories, drugs alone or drugs mixed with alcohol, by far the leading drug used is cannabis. And it's overwhelming. Um, And then there's a whole series of uh, amphetamines, cocaine would be probably the next drug, but they're minuscule in their numbers uh, compared to cannabis. So on the driving side of it, the biggest threat right now using that data, which is kind of the gold star data, you know, cannabis is the real focus right now. Okay, fair enough. Um, Now you're in Ontario, so I'll ask you about this uh, Bill 174, I think they call it the Cannabis Smoke-Free Ontario and Road Statute Law Amendment Act. Um, So in it, it says that, and I'll read this verbatim, exceptions are made to the rules respecting driving with a drug in the body if a police officer is satisfied that the driver is legally authorized to use the drug for medical purposes. Now, you kind of alluded to that already, but how do you feel about that bill in Ontario, and do you think that maybe they should do that across Canada? So what it's there is to protect somebody that might show signs of impairment but they're using their drug in the the way that was prescribed by the doctor. So the person that is abusing their prescription or has over-medicated themselves or mixed it with alcohol, those exemptions would not apply. So it really is, and it's, it's also in the UK, that if you can prove um, that you were on a 
uh, uh, prescription by your doctor and you are using at the levels um, as prescribed, you cannot be convicted of a, a driving offense. I can honestly tell you that very few people are successful using that because usually if they're following the advice of the doctor and following the proper dosage levels, they don't appear impaired on the roadway. Okay, good answer. Um, the federal government has budgeted over $62 million over five years on public education strategies, including advertising. How do you think that that money should most effectively be used from your perspective? Well, I think that um, the best way to spend that money is to enforce the messaging about the legislation and giving people uh, reasonable guidelines as how long they should wait before they drive. I mean, you've got all the different kind of categories. You have, we've already talked about the medical users, but you're going to have uh, young drivers or people that work in a place where they're going to require zero tolerance. And so, you know, you got to respect that. And so people need to know that information, that if you're in some provinces, you, if you're under 21, you can have no amount of drugs like alcohol in your body and if you do it results in you know suspension of your driver's license and so those are the things so that people can make responsible decisions and parents especially dealing with uh young drivers can also you know oversee the use of the the vehicle appropriately um we have so many responsible parents and teens now on the zero tolerance for alcohol and we're hoping we extend that for uh, drugs. So again, that kind of messaging is the most important and to get people educated. So, and we need a lot of that right now because so many people don't know the law, don't know how it works, don't know the impact of C46. And, um, you know, you and this also helps uh, the police do their job so that, you know, they don't have people making mistakes out there um, on consumption levels and, and driving. So that if, you know, that the police can focus on those people that just, you know, choose to neglect the rules and they should be appropriately treated. The bulk of the people who listen to this podcast are adults, uh, many of them professionals. Um, they're not necessarily hardcore consumers and they're not necessarily extremely knowledgeable about cannabis in general, but they're curious about legalization and recreational use. Um, do you have a message for those people? Yeah, I think the biggest message is, you know, like if you're a user of cannabis and you're using it on a regular basis, um, you kind of have to wait a minimum about four hours before driving. And then after four hours, there's nothing magical about that four hours. You need to reassess the situation. And if you're still feeling, you know, the effects of the cannabis, then you know, wait at least another two hours or basically take the night off from uh, driving. Um, and, you know, consequently, if you have, you know, upped the dosage, you've mixed it, or you've done any of those things, then driving isn't an option. And, you know, those are really good guidelines, but that's all they are. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the police making the decision on, you know, whether you're within the law or outside of the law when it comes to driving. And as we always say, that the safest way is always never to mix the 
consumption with the driving, always plan ahead. There's all kinds of alternatives out there, and that's always the safest for you and your family. Perfect. How can people reach out to you or find out more about Mad Canada? Yeah, we have all kinds of resources on our website. Mad.ca uh, is the best way to reach us. And uh, we have all kinds of information on our educational research uh, type of programs, podcast up there, uh, giving the public information. So we'd be glad to have people use our resources and hear your feedback. Great. And as I said before, this uh, podcast was a testament to it. Uh, you're extremely down to earth, and I really appreciate that. So I want to just say thank you for coming on the podcast and explaining uh, cannabis and impairment and driving from your perspective. Okay. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canadian Cannabis Update. If you have any questions or comments or would like us to interview you, contact us at CannabisUpdate.ca or on Twitter at CanCanUpdate. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and every other podcast-related site in the known universe. If you like the music played during this podcast, check out the artist N2. That's N apostrophe T-O. He's a French producer, and he's on the Trend Mask label, and as always, his music was played with permission. The next podcast is just around the corner. Stay tuned. Canadian Cannabis Update is a regularly published podcast. We do our very best to remain as accurate as possible, but take no responsibility for inaccurate details or facts. If a story interests you, we're glad to have brought it to your attention, but take the time to research the details for yourself.